All right, please go ahead and open your Bibles with me. The center part of what we do each and every Sunday, we get into God's Word because it is what we need most. Genesis chapter 30. If you remember just two weeks ago, uh, Sean Smith preached the first half of Genesis chapter 30 as he helped us to consider that God's love for us can satisfy our search for significance in this life and in this world. We learn through that message that God alone is what our hearts can and should find our satisfaction and our joy in. Even as life does not always turn out the way that we hoped that it would, His love for us is able to satisfy our hearts and our souls. Folks, this idea of being satisfied in God's love alone is only going to continue this morning in our text. And so let's read Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 to 43. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in the front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flocks, he would not lay them there. 
So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word again this morning. Friends, to talk about prosperity in many churches today is to walk into very dangerous waters. The the word prosperity is almost a dirty word in many churches today. It's almost like a a curse word that should not be said. When, When you start talking about God's people experiencing prosperity, many healthy, doctrinally sound Christians today become very apprehensive about what you're saying. Why? Because of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, which is taught by people like Joel Olstein and Paula White and T.D. Jakes, that the prosperity gospel emphasizes the fact that God wants his people to prosper in this life and in this world. The prosperity gospel says that God wants us to prosper materially, physically, financially, relationally in this life and in this world, and that the level of faith that we have in God often determines how much he will cause us to prosper in this life. And so, do you have enough faith for your career to succeed? Do you have enough faith for your sickness or your injury to be healed? Do you have enough faith for that new house or that new car that you want? Church, the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. It is not good news. The prosperity gospel is bad, even damning news because it undermines the grace of God. It makes the the expression of God's favor dependent upon the level of our performance or our faith and our ability to to name it and claim it for ourselves. It's bad. It's, It's damning news because it promises us things that God's word simply does not promise. And therefore, it sadly often leaves very sincere Christians hurting and broken and angry and disappointed with God. The prosperity gospel is not good news. But does that mean that prosperity is a bad idea? Because of the heresy of Joel Olstein and Paula White and T.D. Jakes, does the church need to avoid the word prosperity or the idea of prospering altogether? Or, church, is this something that is actually good and beautiful and that you and I need to redeem with a far more biblical understanding of what it is? Does God want his people to prosper? Yes, he does. God wants his people to prosper in this life and in the life to come. Maybe not always in the ways that you hope or you think, but but God's heart is for prosperity. He is a God of blessing, not just so that we can have nice things, but rather so that we can know who he is and give him the praise that he so rightly deserves. Folks, our main idea this morning for our message is simply this. God's promises lead to prosperity for God's people and ultimately to the joyful praise of his name. God's promises lead to prosperity for God's people and ultimately to the joyful praise of his name. And we have three points to consider together this morning. Point number one, the pattern of prosperity. Point number two, the practice of prosperity. And point number three, the purpose of 
prosperity. The pattern, the practice, and the purpose of prosperity. Let's begin with the first point, number one, the pattern of prosperity. Folks, the prosperity gospel tells us that God wants us to prosper, right? The prosperity gospel tells us that God's heart is for us to be blessed and to experience the riches of life. Is that wrong? Is it wrong to want to prosper? Well, friends, no, it is not wrong, and we know that it's not wrong directly from this text because we learn from this text that true prospering comes from God himself. Look at verse 27. After Jacob comes to Laban and asks him to to send him back to his home, Laban says, "But, but I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you, Jacob. And so we don't, we don't know exactly what that phrase by divination means there, but, but clearly the focus of this verse is that Laban knows that he has become rich because of his nephew Jacob. Laban knows that he's not prospering on his own accord. No, he's prospering because of Jacob by his side. And even more so, notice this, Laban seems to know that it is the Lord, Jacob's God, not not his own gods, whichever they may have been. It is the Lord who has done this blessing through Jacob. And then guess what? Jacob doesn't disagree with Laban. Jacob doesn't say, no, 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 Laban. God doesn't like his people to prosper. That, that's a materialistic way to think. J- J- Jacob doesn't say to Laban, no, no, Laban. Prosperity is, is not a part of the Christian life. We shouldn't think that way. We shouldn't value prosperity. No, he, he agrees with him. He says to Laban in verse 30, yes, he agrees, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. Folks, those words increased abundantly. They're going to be repeated down in verse 43 when it says that Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks and female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Those words, to increase abundantly, they mean to overflow. They mean to to teem with things. To to teem with something means to be filled up with it, to have have more than enough of it, to to be overflowing. Laban was teeming with blessing because of Jacob. And then Jacob, by the end of the chapter, is teeming with blessing because of what God had done. Listen, if if Jacob took a selfie of himself and his two wives and all their kids and all of his possessions by the end of this chapter and then posted it on Instagram, clearly the first comment would be hashtag blessed. He, He is a blessed man. But friends, is it right to acknowledge this blessing? A prosperity gospel preacher would love this text because it seems to confirm their message that God is all about blessing his people. But should we love a text like this? Yes, we should. Why? Because this text is very consistent with what we've been learning about God throughout all of Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 1, the the very first chapter of our Bibles, after creating Adam and Eve in his own image, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. Folks, those are words of prosperity. Genesis chapter 12, as God launches his rescue mission through a man named Abram and through his family, he says to Abram, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Those are words of prosperity. 
The, the description of Jacob in verse 43 in our text is very similar to what we read about Abraham back in chapter 24, verse 35, when Abraham's servant says to, to Laban, the Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male servants and female servants and camels and donkeys. He's prospering. Later on in Genesis, when we look at the life of Joseph, I can't wait to study the life of Joseph with all of you in a few months. Joseph, Jacob's son, who is mentioned here in our text this morning, it will say of him later on, even when he is a slave in Egypt, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. The emphatic message of Genesis is that God is a God of blessing. To those that he covenants himself to, to those that he is committed to, to those that he has given his promises to, they are people who prosper. And church, it's not just in the book of Genesis. We see this pattern in this picture throughout all of Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 11, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for a welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Nehemiah says in chapter 2, The God of heaven will make us prosper. Church, this is God's heart. The people of God are to prosper in him. Now, in a moment, we're going to consider what the center of this prosperity really is. Is this prosperity physical or is it spiritual? We, de we definitely need to talk about that. But friends, I, I don't want to rush by this. I want us to, to sit here for a moment. Friend, hear these words. God wants you to prosper. Consider this for your soul this morning after the week that you have had. God's desire is always for your good. Remind yourself of this today. God is committed to your welfare and to your well-being. Do, do you believe that? Church, it's hard to believe that at times, isn't it? When, when our families are falling apart, when, when stress is so high, when, when people sin against us, when our bosses want us to work yet another weekend and keep us from our family, when, when we can't seem to find time even to breathe, when we give into our sinful patterns yet again, when our kids are rebelling, when we have chronic pain or illness that persists and are laid out all week long, when we deal with miscarriages and infertility, when we don't have close and, and fruitful relationships like we want, it's hard to believe that God's heart is to prosper for his people when so many of our experiences feel like the very opposite of prosperity, isn't it? But friend, the truth that he wants us to prosper is everywhere in Scripture. And the Scripture makes it abundantly clear that our God cannot lie. His word is truth. And so no matter how hard your circumstances are this week or during this season, friend, you can know that this remains his desire over your life and he will be faithful to his word. He is committed not just to the idea of prospering, but to true prosperity in your life. Church, we need to believe that. And we need to live in the good of that. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, the practice of prosperity. Friends, God's heart is for his people 
to prosper. We see that pattern. We see that picture everywhere in Scripture. But what does it look like in, in practical ways to live in the good of that promise? Does it mean that we should make our whole lives about work and money in order to experience material blessing? Should all of God's people expect a six-figure income? Does it mean that we are not prospering if we deal with a chronic illness or chronic pain that is never healed? Does it mean that we are not prospering until we experience the things that we are praying so hard to receive from him? What does it mean to live in the good of God's promises, to, to, to bless his people? What does it mean to live in that place? Well, folks, this text helps us to understand a little bit more of what this means. I think there are primarily two things that we need to notice now. First of all, we need to notice that to prosper according to Scripture does not always mean that we prosper in physical and in material ways. Now, yes, when we read the book of Genesis, we do see a lot of material blessing. And, and we're going to talk about that more in point number three. We do see a lot of material blessing throughout the Old Testament. But those things are not supposed to be the ultimate focus. No, material blessing is given in order to primarily point us to the spiritual and emotional blessing that can be found in God alone. In this story, Jacob's focus is on God more than on physical blessing. In, in verse 25, Jacob starts the conversation with Laban by saying, Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Now, that might seem like he's focusing on the physical blessing of a home and country, but in reality, in the context, this is more of an expression of faith in God. Jacob is remembering God's covenant to him back in chapter 28, J Jacob's hope is not in the physical provision of a land. He doesn't even know what's waiting for him as he returns to Canaan. His brother Esau is wanting to hunt him down and kill him. So he's not focusing on, on that specifically, but rather on the promises of God. We, we can see it again in verse 30 when, when Jacob attributes all that God has done, not, not to himself, not to his own wisdom, but to the Lord. Jacob knows who this is ultimately all about. In verse 31, Laban asks, what shall I give you, Jacob? And he says, you shall not give me anything. Why? Well, because Jacob didn't want to be indebted to Laban, just like Abraham didn't want to be indebted to the Hittites when he bought the land from them. Jacob didn't want Laban to receive any credit for his prosperity from this point forward. He wanted that, that, that glory and that, that appreciation to go only to God. Jacob's focus is on God and not first on his material blessing. And church, this is, this is so important for us because this focus on God is what was able to, to stabilize Jacob up until this point. Remember, Jacob had spent 14 years as little more than a slave man to Laban. That's a long time to not prosper Verse 31 says that after 14 years, he still has nothing to provide for his own household. He's poor. He's been taken advantage of. And folks, not just Jacob, right? Think about Abraham and Sarah who came before him and how long they had to wait to have a child. They actually never fully experienced the fullness of God's promises that were made to them in Genesis chapter 12. Friends, think about Israel when they read this story for the first time, they were just ending 400 years of slavery in Egypt. That doesn't feel like prosperity, does it? 
Think about how Israel wandered in the wilderness or, or how often they were attacked by enemies or how often they spent time in exile. Friend, think about your own life this morning. How many trials are you walking through right now? What valleys are you in? Church, we have to be very careful that we don't that we don't, like many prosperity gospel preachers would do, we have to be very careful that we don't manipulate the truth that God wants us to prosper and then assume that he wants us to have an easy and a comfortable life in this world. No. Biblical prosperity does not mean you get a new house. Biblical prosperity does not mean you get a new car or that you will always be healed or that your family will be perfect. No. Even though God's heart for us to prosper is absolutely true, we must not dictate to God what we think that prosperity should look like. Oh, church, sometimes God brings about seemingly horrific circumstances. Circumstances that, that none of us would ever ask for. Circumstances that seem like the opposite of prosperity. Sometimes God brings those things about in our lives in order to do a far greater work of prosperity in our lives. And friends, this is true. This is true, not just in small ways, but also in the biggest ways imaginable. Redeemer Fellowship, think about Jesus this morning. Think about your Savior, the Son of God. If God the Father's heart was for anyone to prosper, certainly it would be his only beloved Son, right? But it is this Jesus, the very Son of God, who went to the cross this Jesus who hung on that cross and died on that cross. Friends, does that seem like prosperity to you? I don't think so. Not in our earthly minds. Church, how does the prosperity gospel, how, how does the health and wealth gospel deal with the reality of the cross? And no one had more faith than Jesus did. He was perfectly one with the Father. His faith was perfect, and yet he was born in a stable. He had no place to lay his head, and he died on a bloody cross. Where is the prosperity in that, we might say? Church, the prosperity in that is that even through his suffering, Jesus was perfectly united to his Father, and his faith was not in his physical well-being, but in the spiritual work that he and his Father were doing together. And church, it's the same for us. When we realize that God's heart for us is not first to bless us physically, but to bless us spiritually, to enrich our relationship with him, to forgive us of the sins that separate us from God, to give us an eternal inheritance. When we realize that blessing, we will no longer idolize physical and material blessings. We will live free from this world and its bondage. And we will be able to trust him in every circumstance. And when we realize that we can trust him in every circumstance, no matter whether we seem to be prospering or not, because of the work that he has done for us, then we will truly prosper. Our spiritual prosperity in and through the gospel is what can stabilize us when, when we don't have physical prosperity in this world or in this life. In, in the same way that, that Jacob, by the end of this chapter, is, is teeming with provision from the Lord Church, through the gospel, we are teeming with God's grace. We have everything that we need to live a prosperous life before the Lord. You may not have that job that you want, but you can team with joy and with gratitude because of what God has done in your life through Christ. You may not have physical health this morning but you, that you've been praying for, but you can still team with strength because of the hope that is in the gospel. 
You, you may not have relational prosperity and, and friendship that brings you a lot of joy. You may feel lonely and forgotten by others, both in the world and in the church, but you can still teem with peace and with love for others because of the great love that has been given to you through Christ. So church, the first thing that we need to notice about the practice of prosperity is that biblical prosperity does not always mean that we prosper in physical and material ways. The second thing that we need to notice is that believing that God wants you to prosper does not mean that you don't do practical things in life. Godly prosperity is not a hyper-spirituality that ignores real opportunities to work for God and to be wise in this life. J Jacob believed God called him to prosper, but that did not mean that he sat back and did nothing. No, he worked hard. He, he didn't over-spiritualize it and say that if God was going to prosper him physically, that, that he could just sit around and wait for it to happen. No, we see Jacob work. And as we're going to see in a moment, he is good at his job. He, he is a wise shepherd. He knew what he was doing. And he's, he used his skills to bring about some of this financial and physical provision. That, that's good. It, it's not faith to just wait for God to do things in our lives. Faith believes that God will provide for us. And then when appropriate, seeks to be faithful to whatever he has put in front of us. You know, this application has, has helped for our, our health in our bodies as well. That there are few things more sorrowful than when somebody gets bought over to the prosperity gospel and says that it's only a matter of faith in God before God heals you and then they go and they ignore sound medical advice and, and choose not to, to pursue that help because somebody has convinced them that if their faith is strong enough, God will work. No. He promises to prosper us spiritually and, and our confidence is in him, but then we can also take practical steps to live for him faithfully and to benefit from, from the gifts that he has given to us in this world. Whether that be through diligence in the workplace or through taking advantage of the gift of science and medicine, there are practicals to our prosperity in Christ. That brings us to our third point this morning. The purpose of prosperity we need to consider the specifics of what happens in the rest of the story. Uh, as we already know, Jacob goes to his uncle and he asks to, to return to his home and to his country. Laban is, is very hesitant to respond because he knows that God has blessed him because of Jacob. And so he asks, what can I give you, Jacob, as a salary in order to keep you with me? But Jacob says in verse 31, you shall not give me anything. J Jacob is resolved to return to his home with his family. And then Jacob creates, really God creates through Jacob a, a brilliant idea. Starting in verse 32, Jacob says to Laban, okay, okay Laban, here's what we should do. You ask what you can give to me, so, so here is all that I'm going to ask. Laban, please give me the spotted and speckled sheep and goats from your flock. Jacob asks for the spotted and, and speckled sheep and goats that are already in the flock, and we know that he is also asking for whatever other spotted and speckled might be born over the next couple of years. So this isn't like a, a one-time uh, quick deal that is happening. No, Jacob is asking for a season of time to pass. He says, let me pasture your flock. And so he's hoping to collect some speckled and spotted sheep and goats over time. And Laban jumps on this offer immediately. Verse 34, he says, good, let it be as you have said. 
Laban likes this idea so much because the spotted and the speckled were, were always the minority of the flock. Without doubt, this is about 20% of the flock at most. So, so this is a great deal for Laban. He's gotten 14 years of labor from his nephew, and now all he's asking is, is less than a fifth of what he has. It's a great deal. It's a steal. He wants to jump all over it. And then, in typical Laban fashion, Laban takes an additional step to his advantage by removing the spotted and speckled that were currently in the flock and sending them away with his sons, a three days journey away. We see that in verses 35 to 36. Laban is not stealing these for himself. He's, they, they are Jacob's, but he does this so that the spotted and speckled that are already in the flock cannot breed with the non-spotted and speckled and create more. He's basically saying, all right, Jacob, sure, you can have these that we already have and whatever else is born, but good luck. I'm, I'm greatly reducing the chances of there being many more spotted and speckled for you to gather. He's, he's removing them. Laban's scheming ways continue. But that's okay, because God has a plan. And now we get into verses 37 to 42, and this, this strange story about how Jacob takes these sticks and he, he peels these, these white streaks and these, these white spots into the sticks, and then he, he puts the sticks in front of the flocks as they drink and as they breed. Now, th- this is kind of hard to explain. <laughs> we, we don't know exactly what is happening here and why Jacob does this. We, we do know, actually, that the whole idea comes from God himself. If you look down in chapter 31, verse 12, you will see that Jacob got this idea in a dream from God himself. But, but still, we don't know exactly what the point of this is. This actually seems to be a, a mixture of legitimate science at play and a little bit of drama being put on as well. The, the spotted sticks that were placed in front of the flocks while they, while they were breeding was likely just a distraction for Laban. Laban was probably actually amused by how hard Jacob was trying to, to use this seemingly superstitious type thing to, to prosper the flock, not realizing that behind the scenes, God was leading Jacob to actually do some brilliant shepherding, some brilliant breeding. Jacob knew his flock very well. He knew which ones were strongest, and he knew that they would breed stronger sheep and goats from there. And so throughout the process, he allows the spotted and the speckled, who are then born after Laban takes the other ones away, he takes the new ones, and he breeds them with the strongest so that his flock will increase more and more. It's actually very smart. It's very intentional. Gordon Wenham in his commentary says, The production of the multicolored sheep and goats may also be scientifically explicable. The vigorous animals were hybrids whose recessive coloring genes emerged when they were bred together. By this means, Jacob secures for himself large flocks of healthy, multicolored sheep and goats, whereas Laban's animals were weak and either pure black or white. So, so there's some scientific way to, to understand what's happening here. But folks, we're not meant to focus on how this happened. What we know is that for the normal flock or herd, only 20% at most would be speckled and spotted. But in a relatively short period of time, verse 43 says that Jacob grew his spotted and speckled flock into a large flock. The, The point is not exactly how it happened, but to understand and to appreciate the who that stands behind it all. 
Friends, this is God's doing. It is his handiwork. God did this all. He, he uses the ingenuity of Jacob. He uses Jacob's skill and hard work. But it is God who miraculously accomplishes these things and causes Jacob to prosper in this way. We, we know as much from chapter 31, verses 1 to 12, which we'll look at next week, where, where Jacob gives God all the glory for what has happened. It's God who prospered Jacob. It's not Jacob. It's not Laban. It's not luck or chance. It is God who has done this thing. And friends, this is what we have seen again and again and again throughout the book of Genesis, isn't it? God is the one who guides. God is the one who protects and prospers his people. He is the one to provide for them. He is the one to miraculously guide them in all of life. It's all of him. And church, this is so good for us to see because it reminds us of the purpose and the end goal of godly prosperity. That the purpose is not to focus on us. It's not to focus on our possessions first, but to focus on the God who gives us the prosperity. Again, God's promises lead to the prosperity of God's people and ultimately to the praise of his name. He gets the glory. Listen, have you, have you ever wondered... Why, when it comes to prosperity in the Bible, why the Old and New Testament seem to be so different from each other? In, in the Old Testament, there seems to be a lot of, of physical prosperity. Consider Abraham and Jacob. They become very rich. Consider David and Solomon. They become incredibly wealthy. God's people in the Old Testament often prosper in a physical way. It's amazing to watch. That's why many prosperity gospel preachers spend a lot of time in the Old Testament because they like these stories a lot. But then you get to the New Testament and you see something a little different. Jesus didn't prosper materially. The, the disciples didn't prosper materially. Paul didn't prosper materially. The, the New Testament church didn't prosper materially or positionally. In fact, the New Testament church seems to be the exact opposite of what we see in the Old Testament. They seem to, to suffer greatly and to be in great want. Why? Well, because the biblical theology of prosperity has developed. At, at first, God used physical things and even a physical people, the nation of Israel, to communicate his presence and his goodness with the world. Physical prosperity was the sign of his blessing then, but as the Old Testament progresses, we see that the material prosperity never lasts for very long, and when the physical blessing for God's people falls short again and again, we begin to long for something more as the reader, don't we? We begin to look for something more, something more permanent than these things. And what we begin to see in the New Testament is that God is, is not opposed to the physical blessing, but he is first and foremost about the ultimate blessing of knowing who is the giver of these blessings. Folks, listen. It is not bad to want to prosper. It is not bad to enjoy this world in its fullness and to want a, a greater prosperity in this world. It was actually good and right that Jacob wanted to go to his home and to his country. Those were physical things. And, and we too should long for a home and for a country. It's not wrong to want to prosper in physical and material ways. God has actually made us physical people in a physical world to desire physical things. 
But as we enter into the New Testament, as we consider the the mission of Jesus and the, the message of the gospel together, we quickly realize that God is doing a work that is so much bigger than just giving you and me a better job or a nicer home. He he is preparing us for eternity. He's doing a deeper work, an eternal work in the church. God is wanting us to see that that to want physical blessings, not bad, but to want physical blessing alone is to miss the entire point. Why? Because it will not satisfy you, friend. Physical blessings that are given are good, but church, those physical blessings are best when we see and celebrate the one who gives them to us. Our prosperity is not about the stuff. It's about the God who created the stuff and who wants you and I to be happy in him. Listen, if heaven, if heaven gave you every physical pleasure that you could ever desire, but Jesus was not there, it would not be heaven, it would be hell. Why? Because it's not about the stuff. The stuff can never satisfy us. Only God himself can do that. He is the treasure of greatest value. And when we see that church, everything changes for us in our lives. When when we focus on the the giver of good gifts, we are able to team with ultimate prosperity. Why? Because we get the giver of the gifts and we get the gifts themselves. When you focus on the fact that it is God who gives all good things and you you begin to thank and, and praise him for it, that enables you to enjoy him and the gifts that he's given. And so if you get that promotion at work, you know that it's not for your own glory but it is to be used for his glory, and you enjoy it in his presence. You don't cling to this world. You don't cling to that position. You cling to heaven, and you seek to use it in a way that makes much of Christ and the work that he's doing in this world. Or if you don't get that promotion at work, you are still able to team with joy because you know that you exist for more than that promotion, and you know that you can glorify God in the blessing or in the lack of the blessing. If you pray for healing, again, and again, and again, and again. And he graciously heals you miraculously, ultimately, which we believe that he still does. Well, then you celebrate that healing first because he's the one who has healed your soul. And then he is also seen fit to heal your body. But if you pray for that healing again, and again, and again, and he chooses to not heal you, which we also believe that he often does, well, then you celebrate the fact that your sickness is not the end of the story, and that ultimately perfect healing is still coming to you. If God chooses to bless you with a new house or a new car, you don't act as if it's unspiritual to enjoy those things. No, God wants you to enjoy them. He has given them to you, but he knows that you will enjoy them more if you enjoy them while remembering that they're just a small taste of what is to come when we see him face to face. And if you lose your job or if you lose your house, you can still prosper because you know that your ultimate home can never be taken away. If you go to lunch today and you have a barbecue and you celebrate our country and the freedom that we have with tons of friends, you can do that knowing that that's just a small taste of the freedom that we will ultimately know with Christ in heaven. Or if you go home alone and eat crackers and cheese all by yourself, you can eat it with gratitude because you know that because you know Jesus, you are not alone. Heaven is coming, friends. It's coming. True and ultimate prosperity is on the way. The new heaven and the new earth, a physical place. This world made 
perfect. This world with all of its beauty and all of its good food and all of its fun activities and all of its comforts, heaven is coming with all of those blessings with Jesus at the very center of it all. And so church, yes, we can applaud, we can thank him for what he's done. And listen, we can live life today in light of that day. Live life today, enjoy that barbecue with Jesus at the center, knowing that he is the giver of all good gifts. And it is all for our good, but ultimately for his glory.